You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 32. This is the fifth message in our our study of uh, the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, just to give you a, a bearing for the book, we've talked about his call to preach in Jeremiah chapter 1. We've looked at the content of some of his preaching in Jeremiah chapters 2 through 10. Uh, we've read a little of his complaints in chapters 11 through 20. Uh, his conflicts in chapters 21 through 29. And now we come to this section in chapter 30 through 33, which is commonly called the Consolations of Jeremiah. It's talking about the, the section on hope. And uh, it is a rich chapter, if you, or a rich section. If you haven't read through it, it's a good Sunday afternoon read. Uh, chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33, filled with hope, filled with references to the, the Messiah. Um, we remember chapter 29, verse 11, right before this section, when the Lord said to His people in exile, He said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And uh, we could say that this section is about those plans. What, what, what is the plan? What, what is the hope uh, this future hope, and that's the, the theme of uh, this section. But we're going to look at a sampling of this in Jeremiah 32. We won't read all of the verses, but, but uh, plenty enough to get the, the sense of the meaning. Jeremiah 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him. Now look in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of, of Manseh, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting at the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed 
uh, deed and a purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power, by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, you've made a name for yourself, as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. And yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Now, look down in verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I'll be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you're saying, it's a desolation without man or beast, it's given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah in the cities of the hill country in the cities of Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev for I will restore their fortunes declares the Lord let's pray
Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word today. Use me as your servant, I pray. You would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you remember a movie from 1989 called Field of Dreams. Uh, the lead actor, Kevin Costner, heard a, a mysterious voice that urged him to build a baseball field or stadium in his backyard, in his prairie cornfield in, in Iowa. And the voice simply said this. What did it say? If you build it, they will come. Which turned out to be, by the way, nothing more than the ghost of legendary uh, baseball stars who came out of the cornfields under the moonlight to play baseball uh, in the field. Now, that was a, a make-believe movie, of course. But, but in Jeremiah chapter 32, the voice of the Lord comes to, to Jeremiah, and, and it's almost as if it could be summarized as this, if you buy it, they will come back. Speaking about a different field, of course, but, but one that was totally real, it, involving the real people and, and a real future that, that had nothing to do with the returning of ghosts, but rather the return of former exiles, the people of Israel who had been carted off to Egypt, to, or to Babylon, excuse me. Christopher Wright notes this, it was not the ghost of glorious past but this was the reality of a guaranteed future. It's a fascinating and amazing story. The year is 587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's armies, we're told in the, these opening verses, are besieging Jerusalem at this very time. And Jeremiah the prophet is in jail because he kept prophesying about this judgment that was coming. He, he just wouldn't be quiet about it. King Zedekiah is fed up of hearing about it from Jeremiah. Verse 3, for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. But, but while Jeremiah was imprisoned, the Word of God was not. And as we've seen, it just kept coming. It kept coming. Verses 6 and 7 comes to Jeremiah again. And it tells him that he's going to have a visit from a cousin named Hanamel. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field. And in verse 8, he does that very thing. The cousin comes. Derek Kidner, a commentator, calls Hanamel, this cousin, perhaps the most insensitive prison visitor of all times. Having not a clue, it seems, the city of Jerusalem is under attack in that moment. And he's out trying to offload his land so that he can get out of town with some cash, with some money. And Jeremiah is the next of kin, so he pays him a visit in jail to offer him a chance to buy the field, the, the farm. It seems like such a, a poor timing in many ways. Like Jeremiah's life is literally in Zedekiah's hands. 
Um, Riken put it like this, buying a farm becomes less appealing when there's a good chance that Jeremiah is going to buy the farm, if you know what I mean. It, the whole thing just seems odd. He, he, here he is, he's in prison with little prospect of being able to enjoy this land, wherever it is. He didn't have, remember, he's not able to marry. God forbid him from marrying and having any kids, so there's nobody to pass the land on to. Uh, the field in question was likely, probably in that very moment, being trampled by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar, and they were burning. If there were vineyards there or an olive trees or anything that would make the farm productive, they were burning all of it. They were ransacking the whole, the whole nation. And then Jeremiah knew that the prospect for Jerusalem and the nation of, of Judah here was going to be captivity in Babylon for some 70 years. I mean, it just, it, it, and his cousin wants him to buy a field at this time? To be more accurate, God wants him to buy a field at this time. So he buys it for 17 shekels, by the way. If you're wondering, like, how much that is, um, it was a steal. Um, we just finished studying Abraham a while back, and I remember that uh, about a thousand years earlier, Abraham had paid 400 shekels for a burial plot. And so, 17 shekels is a pretty good deal. Verse 10, I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. And we learn a little bit later more of why he did it. Verse 13 I charge Baruch and their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. It may have been a really bad time to, to buy from any kind of human perspective, but, but if actually Jeremiah had good reasons to do so, one, the Lord told him to buy it. Because eventually God was going to bring his people back home from Babylon after a period of time. This land purchase, in other words, by Jeremiah was an act of faith in that promise. Even though Jeremiah would likely not live to see that day, he is banking on God's ability to deliver on his promises. And he wants to make sure that deed is protected for a long time and that it is going to be a witness to the faithfulness of God's word. The promise that God is able to keep his, his word. But it wasn't easy to believe that, especially in the moment. That he was in. In verses 16 through 25 is a record of Jeremiah's prayer. Uh, and you might say it's, it's a prayer in which those of you believers, I think, will understand this that where Jeremiah's faith wrestles with Jeremiah's doubts. Because though he's obedient to God's word, he still wrestles with this. <laughs> Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land? You're telling me with what's going on in this moment, 
years leading up to this, what is happening, Jerusalem literally under siege right now? How can this be? Verse 17, he begins his prayer. Oh, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror, and you gave them this land. He's looking back, he's remembering history hundreds of years earlier. God had given what seemed like was, he did what seemed like was impossible. He rescued the Israelites out of the hand of the superpower of that day, Egypt. How do they respond to that? Verse 23, Israel did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you've made all this disaster come upon them. And then verse 25, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses? Though the city is given into the hands of the, the, the Chaldeans? God had asked Jeremiah to invest in... in in what would almost be an inconceivable future. When literally, the, the nation of God's people, the dream of the promised land, is disintegrating before his very eyes. I mean, all of this is going away. It's just... The promise to David, King David, that, of an everlasting kingdom, it's, it's all unraveling, Everything. And, and, and I'm sure he's wondering here, is, is, this, the, is this the end? Is this the, the final judgment of God? Is this the, the end of all of this, the nail in the coffin, so to, so to speak? Or is, or is this some kind of beginning of, of a, a new act of redemption that you're doing? And surprisingly, the answer is both. God, God will exercise both wrath and judgment, and redemption. First, wrath and judgment, verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. There's a list of reasons given for this judgment, and there's not any new reasons given. This has been his message all along in Jeremiah. Uh, verse 30, for the children of Israel, the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. And then there's a catalog again of things we've already seen. They've set up abominations in the temple. They've built high places to worship other gods. They've even offered their children as sacrifices, human sacrifices to the god of Molech. 
sins that Jeremiah has been preaching about throughout his ministry. And remember, what the people thought was impossible, that God would never judge them. They had the temple of God. He would never bring judgment on them for sins was happening. Riken is correct in noting this. If God is really God, then he hates sin and will punish it both in this life and the next. He is the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is it too hard for him to overthrow any person, city, or nation that sets itself up against his will? If nothing is too hard for God, then he must punish sin. But that's not the surprising part. Verses 28 through 35 show God's power to judge sin. He is able to do that, and He does do that. The surprising part, perhaps, is verses 36 through 44, which show God's power to save sinners. God moves so quickly in this text from sin to salvation. It almost is like whiplash. It jerks your neck. It's... It's hard to keep up with. Verse 36, uh, it, it's, it, in some ways it seems illogical. Now, therefore, God says. And then there's this grace that is described for sinners. And if you're reading this carefully, you have to be thinking to yourself, grace for these people? How could a people guilty of forsaking God, creating their own gods in, the pl- in their, His place, offering their children as human sacrifices, how could there be grace for them? How could, how, could they, how could they ever become the Lord's people again? Such grace that we sing about, though it is amazing, seems illogical. And it is. But praise God today, it's not impossible. Remember verse 27, is anything too hard for me? God says. And so the rest of chapter 32 is full of grace, waves of grace, amazing, astounding grace. Now, I know you are probably anxious this morning because you've noticed I have six points and we haven't started yet. They're going to go quick, but I want you to see God's agenda here for saving sinners, what He promises to do. It's quite amazing. First, God promised to bring His people home. Verse 37, He says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety now notice the repeated language there you you may want to underline it throughout this passage of I will that is from God I will The, the emphasis is not on what man does but rather what God will do right I will gather them God says I will bring them back. I will make them dwell. And can I tell you, this is the language of grace. All we can do is sin, but 
God, God will do for us. And so here he's promising to an end to the exile. We, we learned this back in chapter 29. It was going to last 70 years. Uh, remember through Nebuchadnezzar, his successor son, and then his grandson. And at that time, God's people Israel who have been scattered, Jeremiah says, across the lands, they will be gathered by God and brought back into the promised land. This is a repeated theme in these chapters, by the way, chapters 30 through 33. You'll see it come up. Verse, chapter 30, uh, verse 3, for example, says, uh, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take the possession of it. Chapter 30 again, verses 7 and 8. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass, and that day declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. Verse 10 of chapter 30, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. Those are hopeful words, isn't it? God promises to bring them back from captivity to bring them home. Secondly, God promised to make his people his own Verse 38, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, this is covenant language in the Bible, covenant language. Back in chapter 31, just a page over, verse 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he goes on to say, and I will be their God. God, verse 33, and they shall be my, my people. Whenever God makes a covenant with his people, what he is really giving them is himself. I will be their God. The, the primary blessing of the covenant. And really the, the frequently repeated promise in the Old Testament is the promise of belonging to God in, in a mutual Loving relationship. And we've seen that throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few. Exodus 6, 7, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's coming right out of the Exodus. Deuteronomy 26, the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God. As he promised. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. I will say to, in other words, those who are called, not my people. I'll say to them, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Beautiful words. Hopeful words. How can this be? How can such a sinful people belong to God? And God belonged to them. 
We get glimpses of this as the text goes on. Third, God promised to give his people a new heart. A new heart. This is verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Again, similarly, back over in chapter 31, verse 33, God says it like this. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's the same thing. He's speaking there of regeneration or what we sometimes call being born again or new birth. It's it's the language of conversion is what he's saying. God's going to convert them. He's going to regenerate them. He's going to give them new life. They cannot do it themselves. He's going to say, uh, we would use this term uh, in the New Testament, he's going to resurrect these sinners. And some. He's going to give them resurrection life. And again, God says, I will do this. I'll give them a new heart. I love this quote from Reich. And anyone who becomes a Christian receives a new heart and God is the one who performs the transplant. This new heart is something here, according to this text, that all of God's people share together. This new heart, which is incredible again because the picture we've been painting and we go... Back into Jeremiah, think of Jeremiah 17, verse 1, where he spoke about how Judah's sins were engraved and inscribed on their hearts. But here, God promises to solve the problem by giving his children new hearts. Isn't that wonderful, church? Changed hearts, spirit-filled hearts, regenerated hearts, Hearts that desire to follow after God. Hearts that desire to obey His commands. Hearts that that have uh, affections for God. That want to love God and worship God. And we ask, how can this be? How can this possibly be? And then we remember, is there anything too hard for the Lord? This God regenerates us in salvation. Fourth, God promised to make an everlasting covenant. Verse 40, I'll make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now again, chapter 31, one chapter over, verse 31, we learned that this covenant is a new covenant. Here, we learn that this covenant is an eternal covenant. That this work that God is going to do will never end. All of these, let's be honest, seemingly illogical things that are happening that God is promising in these texts, almost impossible promises of God, He promises here are not only going to be sure and certain, but they're never going to end. If you look over in chapter 31 again, verse 35, it kind of describes it. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order 
departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah is saying there, he's describing the how the covenant is going to be enduring forever, that, that the God of creation is also the God of salvation. And this new covenant is as reliable as the very foundation of creation, the very fixed order of things. God is all-powerful. He can keep His promises, church. And He does. Fifth, a fifth impossibility. God promises to hold on to his people. Verse 40 continues, I will, God says, I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Again, each one of these are worthy of a lot more study, but this is, the, I think, the doctrine of the, the perseverance of the saints. Which simply means that all of God's people who are truly His are going to make it to glory. Or as we might say, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God will bring it to completion. He'll finish that, that work. The, the Christian perseveres with God to the very end because God perseveres with the Christian to the very end. God will do this, he says. We sometimes sing, he will hold us fast. God will do it. Sixth, God promised to rejoice over his people. Verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. You know, we read about angels rejoicing when a sinner is saved, but what a picture here that, of God rejoicing in salvation. The prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Well, like Zephaniah, Jeremiah saw that when God does the impossible to save sinners, that it brings great joy to his heart. The very people, think about, the, the, again, what's happening in this text. The very people that God judges in white-hot anger and, and portions of this, this text, there's coming a day when he will rejoice over those he saves. Not because of what they've done, but because of the salvation that he himself has brought to them. And we should ask ourselves, how in the world can this be? How can this change happen? How can both of these things be, be true? We, we are sinners. Part of the answer, again, just to return back to chapter 31, verse 34, is, is this. It's because God says, I will, as a part of this covenant, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
This is perhaps the best thing about the new and everlasting covenant. In the new covenant, sin will be dealt with once and for all. That's what he's saying. Once and for all. When God said to the people in exile, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, and plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and and hope. He he is not talking about some kind of material blessings in which all of your problems are going to go away and you're going to have success and whatever you have in life and no obstacles. And No, beloved, it's something much greater than that. The future and hope he's talking about there is the good news of the gospel. It's this good news. That the new covenant revealed to Jeremiah is the new covenant that our Lord Jesus instituted and mediated by his cross. Jeremiah is looking forward to this. This place, this cross where both the judgment of God is seen. But at the same time, this grace of God is seen. Happening both where God did the impossible, where we were incurable in our sins, facing the certain judgment of God. But on the cross, Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God poured out His wrath on Jesus for our sins so that He could pour out His grace on us. It would take 600 or so years after Jeremiah here, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, would make these promises of a new heart a reality. But, but what a foretaste of those promises yet to be fulfilled right here. And you understand, Jeremiah's purchase of that field was an act of faith in these promises. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. Verse 43, fields shall be bought in this land. Verse 44, in case you missed it, fields shall be bought. What seemed like Possibly the worst real estate investment deal ever made in the history of the Middle East may have been the best one. And here's why. Because God always delivers on His promises. Now here's what I want you to think about this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What's your answer? No. Here's what that means, according to Jeremiah 32. It means that you're acknowledging today that God has the power to bring judgment on people for their sins. Eternal judgment. No one is beyond his reach. This isn't too hard for the Lord. The soul that sins will die and will face eternal damnation of God. But it also means that God has the power to bring salvation. And He has. 
And it is a narrow way, Jesus said. Only few find it. It's almost like buying a farm when your city is under siege and you're about to be killed or hauled away to exile. But remarkably, those who lay down their lives in faith and repentance, Jesus says, will save it. Will save it. Those who humble themselves, who will see the unseen, who will call on the Lord, who will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, He promises to save. And so the question is, will you hear His voice this morning? Will you come to Him in faith? Lord, help us as we think about this. That nothing is too hard for you. These incredible truths, eternal truths that you bring about in life. Lord, may those who are here today in the hearing of this, may we look to you for our refuge. As Peter once said, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. May we, just like Jeremiah did, put our faith in you and your promises. That we might be kept by them. That we might be saved and kept by them. And Lord, let us not forget that it is only in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the one who instituted and mediated this covenant. As we sing of that now, Lord, let us give thanks and commit ourselves anew to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.